and good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a blue pew Bible. And 1 Peter 4 is found on 1016, 1016. You can follow along there. As we do continue in our series, uh, our vision series that we've called this year Stewarding Grace, which aims to paint the picture. Uh, that is what we're hoping to do in these weeks, paint a picture of what a church looks like that doesn't just um, acknowledge God's grace, um, doesn't just occasionally refer to God's grace or sing about God's grace. Uh, in our case, it doesn't just literally have the word grace on our building as you walk in, but to be a church that is actively stewarding God's grace in our lives. What's that look like? Um, and our hopes in painting this picture is to rightly see ourselves in a story that God is writing across history, across time and space, and, and, and seeing it, but not just, again, seeing it, but just grasping it so that life in the church is not just a thing you do. Um, it's not just to maybe keep your conscience clean. Uh, it's not because to keep your family happy. Um, it might do all those things. Uh, but primarily, that would wake us up to the fact that we are being invited into something. Every time that we gather and every time that we uh, just pursue the Lord, we're invited into something bigger than ourselves. And that, that propels us to move, right? A, a vision that causes motion propels you to move. And, and as Pastor Ben you know, said in, uh, in his welcome, that our, our, our vision at Grace Church is pretty simple. Um, uh, and, and I don't mean um, unimpactful, hopefully, but, but it is simple, intentionally simple. That at this church, we want to know Jesus Christ and make him known. And everything we do, we want to see funneled in and out of that. And, and we do so through the pathway of those four words uh, that Ben is still trying to get the order of. But you know what? He's new. He's getting it. All right. Gather, grow, give, and go. Uh, he's doing great. Um, uh, and, and our passionate hope is that when we walk this pathway together, like when we truly commit to this pathway together, uh, we will strengthen one another in the faith. Like, like you, you will grow stronger here. And, and, and more than that, that you'll make an impact in this world and making disciples of all nations. That, that's not just ethereal, but we can see that forged through the ministry of the local church. Um, and so this week, we're going to take a closer look at give. How does being a steward of God's grace impact how we give of ourselves? And so I want to recognize right at the top, and I often kind of try to do this and put, the, put it before us and set the table in this way, that everybody you know will give themselves towards something in life. Everybody in this world will give of themselves towards something. The question is not if you will give yourself. And when I say of yourself, I mean your most fervent energy, uh, your, your most consistent desires in life, your highest hopes, your, the best of your time, your treasure and talent. You're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to give of yourself to something, not if. The question is what? What are you giving yourself towards? What are we giving ourselves to as a church? And so that brings us to 1 Peter 4. We're going to read verses 7 through 12. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This letter is written by a man named Peter. 
Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples that he uh, walked with during his three-year earthly ministry uh, on his way to the cross. And Peter, at this point, it's about, I think, about 25 to 30 years after Jesus died and rose again, he's sitting down, he's writing a letter to a series of churches in the region of Asia Minor. Uh, Asia Minor is what we know as present-day the country of Turkey. And there was a lot of churches that were planted there, started there, and, and Peter is writing them a letter. And the overarching theme of this entire letter is perseverance in the faith. It's a very clear theme throughout the whole letter, perseverance in the faith. These churches were suffering. They were experiencing persecution and suffering for, for, for the fact that they were a church following after Jesus Christ. Uh, the context behind that is that many of the believers in these churches were non-Jewish, meaning they had pagan background, not Jewish background. And so what that means is that somebody came to their city, started to proclaim the gospel, and these people believed in the gospel. They heard, and by God's grace, they repented of their sin, and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And they joined churches, and they started churches. And their lifestyles began to change, as one's does when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. But now they're no longer worshiping idols. They're no longer uh, seeing the Roman Empire leaders as gods themselves, as they often wanted to be seen. And so they are seen as uh, really turning their back on their own kind of uh, empire, right? They're seen as unpatriotic now because they're not serving and worshiping the way that they maybe used to. They're disloyal perhaps to their families. Some of you maybe have experienced that. You've come to faith in Jesus Christ and now your family feels a little bit, a sense of betrayal, that you're being disloyal to the way that you were raised, and they're feeling betrayed to their city. And so essentially these churches in Asia Minor feel like exiles in their own land. Outsiders in their own communities. And so Peter writes them a letter to exhort them to stand firm in the faith. To advise them on how to live through persecution and suffering. And to encourage them with the hope of Christ that will endure to the end. Uh, in fact, in chapter 4, uh, the passages that bracket the one we just read. So the passage before we just read and the passage after we read in 1 Peter 4 both have to do with suffering. How to persevere in suffering. And so that's the context which now he's giving these practical instructions on how a Christian ought to live in the kingdom of God. How ought you to live? How ought, um, should you give yourself? And that context is important to know because it sheds some light on that first phrase in verse 7. Look at your Bibles again. It, it's, it's, a, it's a big start to this passage, right? The end of all things is at hand. So if we're actually going to steward grace in our lives, we need to know some things. We need to know first, what does that phrase mean? Second, why does Peter write it? And then third, how then should we give of ourselves in light of it? What does it mean? Why does he write it? How then should we live in light of it? So first, what does it mean? What does the end of all things is at hand mean? Uh, I want to start this way by saying what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Peter was mistaken. Uh, that Peter thought as he was writing this that Jesus was surely going to return in his lifetime. That it was just a matter of time, it was a matter of days, months, or years, that the end is here, Jesus is about to come back. Uh, and the reason why I do not think Peter thought that is because in the next letter he wrote, in the letter of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he writes this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And that thousand years is as one day. So Peter understood God is outside of time. All right? That, 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 that he's not bound by time. He's under no illusion that Jesus was definitely going to come back within his lifetime. But, and here's what's important. While he wasn't predicting Jesus would come back, 
he is acknowledging that Christ, Jesus Christ, could come back at any time. Do you see it? He's not saying he's definitely coming back in the near future, but he could come back anytime. The end times, or other writers in the New Testament, and many of the writers all talk about this together, others will call it the last days, refers to a period of time that the church was started in. It's the period of time that the church is still in 2,000 years later. And it is the time between Christ's first coming in his life, death, and resurrection and his second coming or his return. That's what we mean by what we sang by Christ's return. We, we, we sang it in our first song this morning, Sing to the King, anticipating his return. So if you don't have a church background, you're like, what does that mean? What's Jesus returning mean? Here's what it means. That Jesus promised to return after ascending to the right hand of the Father to culminate God's final salvation and wrath for all to see. There will be no mistaking it. Every knee shall bow and will either be uh, affirmed in their salvation or punished in wrath. And we're told in Scripture that is a day that is coming. But we cannot know the day or the hour it will occur. Nor should we spend any real time trying to predict it, which is a whole nother sermon. But unlike many uh, other systems of belief around the world, Christians view history as linear. Uh, what I mean by that is that there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. History reveals God's story, and it is always headed somewhere. Every single day, it's a part of history that is headed somewhere. That, that while God is eternal, God has not had a beginning, his story of redemptive history had a beginning. And it will have an end. There were the first days, the days of creation, and then the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and many ups and downs of history uh, throughout Israel. There were 400 years of prophetic silence until God took on flesh in the birth of Jesus Christ and, and he walked the earth. And ever since Jesus died and rose again, we have been living in the last days. This is the last days. So it's been 2,000 years so far of the last days. But remember, to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. So for us, it's 2,000 years. For the Lord, it's a weekend. And we are still in those days. And we don't know how long these days will last. But the next thing that's going to happen in God's storyline of redemptive history is known. We just don't know when. Jesus is coming back. And we don't know when the day will be, but it could be any day. That's the kind of the theological sense of this phrase, what it means. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it could happen anytime. But that's not all. It's not just a theological kind of sense of what this means. There's also a very practical sense. All right, for any, every single one of us in this room this morning, for everyone who's listening right now, the time is near, meaning we're all going to die. Welcome to church. All right, I'm glad you came to church this morning. We're all going to die, and it could happen any time. So in practically, it kind of means the same thing. We will die, but we don't know when we will die, but it could happen anytime. None of us are guaranteed anything. Therefore, all of life is lived in the shadow of eternity. All of life is lived in the shadow of eternity. Eternity looms for us all. And you can either try to distract yourself from that unsettling truth, or you can steward that truth. You could distract yourself from it, or you could steward it in a way that will actually shape your life to the glory of God. Which leads to number two. Why does Peter say the end of all things is at hand? Why is he saying that now in this letter? 
Well, remember what I said, um, and this might sound surprising at first, but Paul says that phrase to encourage people. He, he is seeking to encourage the church by t- reminding them the end is near. Because, as I said, the churches in Asia Minor, minor they were suffering. They, they were struggling to hang on. Uh, perhaps some members of the church or many members of the church were questioning in their minds, is this whole Jesus thing worth it? I heard the gospel, my, my heart was transformed, I believed, I joined this church, and this is really hard. And life is harder now than before I was a Christian in some ways. And so maybe they're questioning their minds, like, am I going to hang on to this? Is this worth hanging on to? I know that many, if not most of you, have asked that question in your faith journey at some point. Is this worth it? This is really hard. Is it a question you're asking right now? That maybe you haven't been, maybe nobody really even knows about it, but internally you're like, is this really... Are we doing this? Am I going to continue in this? I think about the many teens in our church, middle school, high school. Maybe you've grown up in the church, but maybe you're at an age and you're starting to think, like, am I going to commit to this? Is, is this life for me? Like, maybe amongst your friends, you feel lonely. You feel like nobody else is really doing this, like your family's doing this. And it's like, am, am I going to hang on to this? This is really hard. So Peter is reminding this church in the first century, this won't last forever. The end of all things is near. The end will come. In fact, it's at hand as we speak. He says it to get their eyes off their situation, off their circumstance. Don't stare at your circumstance. Lift your eyes up to the God who is making all things new. He says this to embolden patience, that they can patiently endure. It's like a snap back to reality kind of statement. The end of all things is that near. It kind of wakes you up. I don't know if this actually happens in real life or just the movies, but when somebody's kind of all in a chaotic mode and they just can't get a hold on things and somebody splashes their face with a cold cup of water, I don't know if you've ever done that, nor should you. But what happens in that moment, it kind of like slaps them in the face. It's kind of like, wake up, come back to me. Right here, stay focused. Don't lose sight of what God is doing here. Look at the big picture. Live with your eyes wide open. Because when we have a right view of the future, it sharpens the way you will live in the present. When you have an accurate view of what is coming, it sharpens the way you will live in the present. I think about fellow parents in the room. Maybe you're raising kids and discipling kids who are facing very specific and acute struggles right now. Struggles at school, uh, with their siblings, Maybe friends, there's some real struggle happening there. A lack of confidence, anxiety. We know it's out there. Our family feels it. Your family's feeling it. What this reminds the parents is like, like first and foremost, be in those feelings with them. Show them you care. Don't dismiss them. Like you see them. Be in those feelings with them. But then get down to their level and cast a vision to look higher. To look bigger, look up. Point them to what God is doing here. There's something bigger happening here. Eyes wide open. Peter wants the church then. Peter wants the church now, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to live in the shadow of eternity. Don't forget, the end of all things is near. And the reality is we will not live the way God has intended us to live. And we will not steward his grace and how we've been called to. We will not give of ourselves until we remember we're in the end times. 
And, and so here, here's why I think we, we do kind of get this point when we think about it. Um, have you ever been asked this question or some variety of this same question? Um, what would you do if you knew you had one week to live? You know, we, we, we've all heard that question, maybe asked that question. It's an age-old question, and there's different variations. You had one day, this is the last day of your life, or you know you had one year left. How would you spend it? If you knew this was your last week, what would this week look like for you? And there's like a conversation piece to that. I think, you, could, you know, there's like a silliness to it, right? It fetches all different kinds of answers at its core. But the reason we ask it is because it makes you think a little bit. If I actually knew I only had a week left, what would I do? It brings you to a mindset that I want to be intentional. I want to be purposeful about how I spend my time in my final days. And so you got all the common answers. you got, you know, those who want to travel, uh, those who want to be with loved ones. Uh, maybe you're the type that you want to do something crazy. You want to go jump out of an airplane. I only got a week left, right? Now is the time to do something crazy you've always wanted to do, but you had never had the courage to do it. But now for some reason, a week left of your life, you have the courage to do it. I'll be honest, I'm in vain of that. If I said you had one week left, how do you want to spend it? I probably wouldn't want to gather a lot of people I love and go together to some mountain with a lake that has a house with a wraparound porch. And I want to just spend a week there. I just want to hang out. I want to read a good book, have some good conversation, and be with the people I love. And there's a selfishness to that, I realize, but that's kind of how I would answer. Now, as I say this, I know there's some of you, that's not a silly hypothetical question. That makes for interesting conversation. Some of you have been in the room when you or a loved one was given a timetable uh, based on a diagnosis, and you're in the room. And somebody says to you, a man or woman, doctor, nurse, says, it's looking like you had six months to a year. The majority of people here, we're looking at about two years max, even with treatment. If, 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 if we stop treatment today, it's probably looking like a few weeks to a couple months. Some of you have been in the room. And, and, and so the question's even there. Why do we give timetables? Why do doctors give timetables? There's something there, isn't there? Like when you put a number to it, it kind of snaps you to reality. Oh, like this is the end. How am I going to spend my final days? Now here's the interesting thing for us. That's a little different from the readers that were first hearing it in the first century. Uh, the majority of re readers in these churches in Asia Minor would read that statement, and you know what they would initially feel? They would feel relief. The end of all things is at hand. This will not last forever. This suffering will not last forever. This is not your final home. You're headed somewhere. But today, and I know I'm kind of painting with a broad stroke. I'm not saying this is true for everybody in the room. But especially in the context of where Grace Church is located, man, we're in the suburbs. All right? It's affluent. We live pretty comfortably. Life is good. I'm not saying you don't suffer, but broad strokes. We're not facing the widespread persecution, certainly, that these churches were facing. I think the majority of us, maybe not all of us, but the majority of us, we hear that statement, the end of all things is that near, and I don't know if you feel relief. Maybe like me, you feel some sorrow. No. This can't be the end. I don't want it to end. I'm not ready. Uh, and I've, I've said half-jokingly that around here, when the Bible says, Lord Jesus, come quickly, um, in the suburbs we say, come quickly, but like not too quickly. We, my family's got a beach vacation coming up next week, all right? We've been looking forward to that one. Not too quick. 
Um, not until after the bonus that I'm in line to get in this next year. It's been a good year at work. I've worked hard for that one. So don't come before that one. Not until after this season is over. I've been training for this season. And I'm playing well. I just got put in a starting rotation. I'm playing really well. So just come after this season. I know that hits you a little bit. It hits me a little bit. Lord, come quickly, but not too quick. So if like me, if you would admit that that's a place that your initial feeling is not relief, but maybe sorrow, where the end of all things is more of a, a, a struggle than it is a hope, here's what I want us to see. Whether we're hearing that in the suburbs in 2023, or they're hearing that in a persecuted land in Asia Minor in the first century, the impact is the same, and the reason is the same, and the call on our lives is the same. Whether to bring hope or to disrupt comfort, Peter is asking us to fix our eyes on Jesus. So wherever you are on that spectrum, maybe somewhere in the middle, the call is the same. The end of all things is near, so bring your eyes back to Jesus. False comfort is a crisis to think that this is your home. That's a crisis. And, and, and suffering, you feel like I can't hang on, that's a crisis. And the answer is the same. Look to Jesus. This is why Peter says, the end of all things is near. So you will give of yourself in whatever days the Lord has left for you. And so in light of all that, we move to number three. How then should we live? When you grasp what it means to be in the end times and why we're in it, it gives you the basis to give your entire self to God and his kingdom work in this world. And I don't think you will give all of yourself until you understand those first two points. To, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice every day, waking up, choosing with joy to be a living sacrifice. You won't do it unless you understand where we are and why we're here. And so when we say give at Grace Church, we're not just limiting that to how much money are you giving to Grace Church. We're not just limiting that to where are you serving at Grace Church. Certainly generosity and serving are aspects of giving our entire selves, but that is not all of it. We're talking whole life stewardship, whole life give for the glory of God and for the joy of all peoples for whatever time we have left. And in these last days, we will all either steward the grace given to us or we will waste it. It's two choices. You will steward the grace given to you in Jesus Christ, or you will waste the grace given to you in Jesus Christ. And as I stand here this morning, I want to say to you that wherever you are in life, at the start of your life, by God's grace, you have a, hopefully a long runway ahead of you still. Maybe you're right in the middle of your life, like smack in the middle, maybe it just hit your reason, like, man, I'm in the middle of my life. Maybe you are towards the end of your life. You're on the back nine, as my dad says, of your life. Regardless of how you feel like you have lived up to this point, maybe the first thing you're thinking about goes, I have wasted it. I've wasted it, man. I'm, I'm on hole 15, and I've wasted it. I only got a little bit left. My encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is that today is the day the Lord has made. And today is the day that you can say, I'm going to steward grace for whatever amount of time I have left. There's a book um, I've talked about before, but it's been a few years. It's a book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Um, I would say this. It is a risky book to read. 
uh, once you read it, it might, might not, maybe not definitely, but it might change the trajectory of your life. Not guaranteed, but it has for many, and it did for me. When I read it in 2013, over the course of a few weeks, training in and out of the city on my commute, and I kind of felt it early on. I was like, this is a, if I'm going to go through with this book, it's going to be a dangerous book to read. And it was a glorious, dangerous book to read. And I want to share a quote from it to give you a taste of it. This is what Piper writes. He says, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter. Perhaps just one. And then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things. But who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't need to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things or one great, all-embracing thing and be set on fire by them. The one great thing that he comes back to in the book is the gospel. One great, glorious thing that when we are anchored in the truth of the gospel, which we talked about last week, if we're anchored of God's grace being poured out to us, actually steward that, grasp it, not just acknowledge it, not just reference it, but like own it, a free gift of salvation in Christ His blood shed to wash us clean. You grasp that, and you will pour yourself out for the glory of God. You will give. You will. And so now for the rest of the passage, Peter, in wanting to give clear application, is going to give five expressions of how it's going to look. How can it look like in your life, in light of God's grace, that you will give of yourself five things? Some of you are like, I thought we had three-point sermon. Now there's five points. What's happening? We're going to go quick here. Five things that we will give. Number one, attention to God. Before we give to others, we give attention to him. Verse 7, back half. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Stewarding grace is fixing the focus of our lens on God and not allowing the foundation of our minds and our hearts to be distracted by other things. It starts with our attention to God. And, and, and I don't need to tell you this, that we very much today live in the age of distraction. It is so easy to be so absorbed in things that crowd God out, God out of your thoughts day in and day out. You, you know, sometimes maybe we ask a question like, how does so-and-so get by without God in their life? And you know what the answer is for most people? They're not even thinking about it. They are so distracted. So absorbed in other things. There's so many things you can give yourself to. They're not even thinking about it, many of them. And when our minds, even those who are in Christ, are fixated elsewhere, the grace given to us in Christ is relegated to the background. Where we lose control of our attention. And we can go an entire week, month, longer without having any real meaningful thoughts about God. Without any real attention given to Him. And we're just caught up in the chaos of life. And it's interesting what Peter says. He says, fix your attention on God. Why? For the sake of your prayers. 
I can't dig totally into that statement, but here's what I think he's saying, at least at the base level, that our priorities in life, what you give yourself to in life, are exposed first and foremost in our prayer life. That's the first sign to ourselves, whether or not we are giving our best attention to God. I will never tell you prayer is easy. Prayer has never been easy for me. It's never come easily. Some of you, it's just a gift for you that prayer comes easily for you. Most, I'd say, is not easy. But I want to be honest. If prayer is non-existent in your life, you have taken your attention off God. You have redeployed it to other things. Other things that will be put at the center and not Jesus Christ. And so when we have a non-existent prayer life, we will not be equipped, we will not be empowered to give ourselves the way God has designed us for the sake of your prayers. You won't be sober-minded, you won't be self-controlled. So let's remember this, in life, we will give towards wherever our focus lies. You will give towards wherever your focus lies. That's true for everybody. Where does your focus lie? Let us focus together on Christ. Number two. We will give love to others. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. We will give love to others. Here's the connection. That the more attention we give to God, the more love we will give to others. There's the connection. The more attention you give to God in your life, the more love you will give to others in your life. Love in the way God has designed you, not selfish love. We can give love to others selfishly because we want to get something out of it. It will work out for us in the end if we love so-and-so. That's not the kind of love God designed you to do. It's a love for the glory of God and for their good. And that love will show up in a myriad of ways in the way that God's uniquely gifted you and placed you. And we'll see a couple of those in a moment. But our conviction to love others will allow us to steward grace in a way that seeks to build others up, not be consumed with ourselves. So, I mean, you know this. When you love someone, it's not hard to give yourself up for them. Like when you, when you love someone, like they're just dominating the affections of your soul. It is easy to give yourself up for them. It is a joy. You could say it is your pleasure. It's a gift for you to love them just as much as it's a gift for them to be loved by you. It's a culture of being other-centered. I want to build you up. I find joy in building you up. Uh, many of you know that this is why Chick-fil-A, you know where I'm going with this, trains their workers that whenever a customer says, thank you, what do they say? My pleasure. They don't say, hey, no problem. All right, it's not, that's the jersey. You're welcome. All right, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. They don't even say, you're welcome, and it's not even wrong to say, you're welcome. But from the top down, they want to create a culture that says they find pleasure in caring for others and providing for others. Because we have been created to serve. It's deep within there. And when you love someone, it is a gift for you to serve them. And we experience the greatest joy in life knowing that we are used to build up others. It is truly my pleasure when I care for someone I care about. And it's that same love that drives us to be willing to forgive others. Do you notice that in that verse? Peter says it covers a multitude of sins. It empowers you to forgive. 
to show people we've received forgiveness by God's grace. We've received that. So too, we can channel that grace. You're a channel of grace to forgive others. There's a woman, Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary, late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, she ran, uh, did a lot of things over, I think, course of 50-plus years of ministry in India, and she ran a girls' orphanage there. She was often asked because of just how much she did, prolific writer, prolific uh, poem writer, uh, but then just poured herself out for her entire life, single woman her entire life, uh, just for the sake of these little girls in India. And she'd be asked questions like this, how do you do it? Like, how do you keep yourself going? All the obstacles you face? She says this, she connected the dots with this simple quote, it'll be on the screen. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Ask not how little, but how much can love give. Let's go number three. When we live in light of eternity, in the shadow of eternity, we will give hospitality to all. In the early church, hospitality had multiple layers to it. Uh, the church did not meet in separate dedicated buildings, church buildings, until about the second centuries when those started to pulp up. And even those were the cities and the rural areas for even into uh, the first several centuries, the churches met in homes. And so for the church to gather in worship, and we talked about two weeks ago how important the gathering is, in order for the church to gather in worship, it required somebody to open up their home, to open up their home for the sake of worship. And beyond that, the early missions movement of people spreading out through the region to proclaim the gospel and plant churches and visit those churches, it required that Christians in each region and each city and in the rural areas between would host those travelers. Have you ever asked that question? All Paul's missionary journeys, where did he stay at night? Where did he sleep? Paul, Timothy, Barnabas, Priscilla, and Aquila constantly traveling, where did they stay? Not at rest stops, not Airbnbs. Not four-star hotels. They relied on, in faith, that fellow believers, when they showed up to their door, would take them in, feed them, and host them. Uh, William Barclay wrote a commentary in Colossians in the 1950s. Uh, it's been super helpful for um, just these last couple weeks for me. He's, he wrote this. He said, Many and many, a nameless one, in the early church, by opening the doors of their house and home, made Christian missionary work possible. We'll have that quote up on the screen. Many and many a nameless one in the early church, by opening the doors of their house and home, made Christian missionary work possible. Guys, over the last 2,000 years, Christianity has had some names that we still know, that we still remember, that helped shape the growth of the church and the movement of the church. I appreciate them. I've learned from them. I will continue to read biographies of them. But the reason why the local church is still going in Ridgewood in 2023 and to the ends of the earth is not because of those people. It's the multitude of nameless ones that committed to be faithful. Grace Church, what a joy for you and I to be invited into the ranks of the faithful nameless ones. Come be a nameless one with me and let's do it for the glory of God. And when Peter says to do this, he says with the phrase, do it without grumbling. You know what that indicates? This was kind of hard. It implies this wasn't always convenient to have people show up unannounced and then bring them into your home. But when casted in the shadow of eternity, 
of how hospitality breaks down walls amongst believers and builds bridges in the kingdom of God. It was a joy-filled burden. Do it, brothers and sisters. Do it without grumbling. So it was layered then. Hospitality certainly layered in the church today as well. I think there's a sense where you've got to think about being relationally hospitable. Are you relationally hospitable? Meaning being willing to get to know people. Taking time to take interest in others. Uh, to open yourself up to them for the sake of encouraging them. Being vulnerable where you need to be vulnerable. Are you relationally hospitable with other people? And then there is practical hospitality. A posture of willingness and desire, yes, to have people in your home. And a willingness to go into other people's homes. Because that also might be uncomfortable for some of us. And, and, and this, that's an interesting um, exhortation in the suburban context that we're in. I keep coming back to where we are. Because the idea of a home in the suburbs is kind of like a castle. And, and, and something that protects you from everything else around. I recall Ashley Hales. It's been a couple years since I've quoted her book, but she wrote a book called Finding Holy in the Suburbs. By the way, there's a real market for more books to be written about ministry context in the suburbs, but we'll talk about that later. But she wrote a book called Finding Holy in the Suburbs. She wrote this. It'll be on the screen. The story of the suburbs is the story of a house. The single family residence held out as an answer to universal hungers for safety, shelter, beauty, and ease. Look at this. Our houses and neighborhoods are more often than not built to keep people out rather than welcome people in. Guys, as a church in the suburbs, let us not overlook the fact that the simple act of what Rosaria Butterfield calls radical ordinary hospitality can do in the mission field of the suburbs. Of how easily you could stand out by welcoming people in into your home, believers and non-believers alike, to strengthen faith and awaken it. Let's keep going. We've got two left. When we give of our entire selves, we give in service with our gifts. Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's buried grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Notice what Peter writes there. He says, as each has received a gift, not if each has received a gift. All right, this is for us to see together right now in this moment that every single one of you, if you are a part of Grace Church, is gifted and essential in building this church up. Every single one. Essential in building up the church in the likeness of Christ to equip one another and partner with one another to make disciples of all nations. And this helps us see that our gifts, whether they be speaking gifts used to encourage others or serving gifts used to build up others, the Bible helps us see that every gift, whether time, treasure, or talent, or all three, is a working of the Spirit through you, channeling grace through you to the benefit of others. That's why God has gifted you. That the the expression of our gifts will be different. The extent of our gifting will be different according to God's infinite wisdom which is why Paul, uh, Peter writes that we are to be stewards of God's varied grace. It's varied up to his providence, expression of it, extent of it. So different giftings, different amounts of giftings, but the same source. God's grace aimed to build the church. And that is why we emphasize serving so much at Grace Church. Serving with our time. Serving with our acts of service, with our serving teams. 
using your talent and your gift to build others up, serving with financial generosity. And we say pretty clearly and often, if you do call Grace Church your home church, you ought to be serving in these ways. And it's not just for the sake of Grace Church, it's for the sake of your discipleship as well. It's a both and. And so I know maybe some of you struggle to serve because you don't think you have anything to offer. You don't know your gifting or where you should be. Others, if you're honest, you struggle to serve because you don't want to. Uh, there's too much of a sacrifice or there's too much going on in your life. You're too busy and, and you just be honest, you've deprioritized the local church for the sake of other things. And I'm not even calling you selfish. I, I'm just saying I don't think you're seeing the story that God is inviting you into. I, I just don't think you're grasping it. To, to, to steward grace and not waste it. So if you are serving, and I know so many in all those ways, financially and, and serving and building others up, man, so many of Grace Church are serving. I pray you were encouraged by that this morning. And I pray that if, if you're not in a place where, you are, where you're able to serve, I pray that you just would simply reconsider that. Take a stock of just your time and your treasure and your talent and ask where you're prioritizing the kingdom of God through the local church for your sake and for the good of others. And then lastly, we finish with this. We give all the glory to God. That's how this passage ends. Peter ends in worship. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love how Peter brackets the vision to give in our lives. He starts with the attention on God. And he finishes with the invitation to give all the glory to God. Bracketing our lives and giving of ourselves. He's not heaping commands on us. He's not putting bricks at our back, burdens on the church to weigh us down or to make us nervous or make us feel guilty. But he's inviting us into a vision of what is possible when the entire church chooses to steward grace together. For the glory of God. Final quote before we close. Again, back to William Barclay. He writes simply this. It affected me. And I'm grateful for Grace Church, how true this is here. He writes, a special grace would enter the church if people ceased doing things for themselves and started doing them for God. What a church can do when it's unleashed with that special grace. And so this whole passage could be summed up this way. Grace Church, the end of all things is at hand. So live in the shadow of eternity by giving your whole self unto the God who is writing your story in the midst of his story. And when we do that in a way that's sacrificial, we will not add glory to God, but we will magnify the glory of God as an act of worship together. Let's pray. Father, it is our fervent desire to make much of you in all things, individually and as a church, to make much of you, to behold you. And so we're thankful for your word and how it draws us into that. That when you draw us into this sense of worship by giving of ourselves, it will draw others to worship you as well. And so, Father, this world lives by a mantra that we must just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But, Lord, we can live by a different mantra. We can live to your glory and to build up others, for tomorrow we see Jesus. And we are looking forward to that day. And we thank you that he is with us now. And through your spirit, you dwell within us now, Lord. So let us firmly grasp that and get going in our lives. And let it be all for your glory. And it's in your name we pray.
Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Song before the Lord's Supper.